Hello and welcome to Made to Measure, the podcast of the Journal of Trading Standards. I'm Paul Evans. Well, we've resisted long enough, and in this episode we'll be turning our gaze to the biggest puzzle faced by trading standards in a generation, Brexit. When the UK voted to leave the European Union back in June 2016, it became immediately apparent that the process of separation would be far more complicated than many had originally anticipated. Indeed, as of July 2019, negotiations around the terms of the EU's exit are ongoing against a backdrop of political infighting, delayed deadlines and the threat of economic turmoil. Because of the EU's efforts to harmonise consumer protection regulation across its various member states over the past few decades, the UK's exit creates a multitude of unanswered questions around a whole swathe of complex consumer protection issues. This comes at a time when trading standard services are already struggling through dramatic cuts to resources. In response to the unique challenges posed by Brexit, CTSI set up the Brexit Think Tank. This initiative involves experts in various areas of frontline trading standards coming together to pool their knowledge in order to assess the threats and opportunities posed by Brexit and to make sense of some of the tangled loose threads that seem likely to result from the UK severing its ties with Europe. The think tank is led by CTSI's head of policy, Craig McClue. For this week's podcast, managing editor Richard Young spoke with Craig about how trading standards professionals are preparing for Brexit and how a range of everyday consumer protection issues, from travel and tourism to digital goods and food standards, have the potential to be disrupted. My name is Craig McClure and I'm Head of Policy for the Chartered Trading Standards Institute. Uh, that role involves, I guess, leading for the profession on debates that, that shape and promote the, the interests of trading standards professionals throughout the UK. And that usually involves responding to, I guess, the big issues of the day, things like government white and green papers. And uh, there's no bigger debate, I guess, at the moment than Brexit. So going back to 2016, when the referendum result came through, what was CTSI's response? I think it became uh, abundantly clear as soon as the vote came in that exit in the EU was going to prove a huge challenge for, for trading standards. And there's a great deal of consumer protection, enforcement, regulation and market surveillance interconnectedness that, that's built up over nearly half a century. So potentially unpicking all of that would, would be a mammoth task. And as we normally do in, in, in such circumstances, we go, to our, we go to our experts and find out what they feel would be the best policies in this, in this particular area. So that, for that reason, we formed what became known as, as our Brexit think tank. And if you examine the work of the broad work of trade and standards, you'll find that it's usually we in terms of EU relevance, there were nine broad areas that we could use. Uh, they were fair trading and enforcement, e-commerce, product safety, legal metrology, animal health and agriculture, uh, intellectual property, cross-border access to justice, travel and food. So they were the main sort of areas and, and we we sourced the experts from our, our lead officer group mainly to, to consider the challenges and opportunities. However, we also enlisted the help of, of external consumer policy partners, such as the Competitions and Markets Authority, which and uh, Citizens Advice, as well as all the relevant civil servants from, from Whitehall departments. I think we were particularly well served by, by a lady called uh, Jacqueline Miner, 
She was a former director of consumer policy at the EU and the EU Commission's form of head of representation in the UK. So we were really well served in terms of uh, EU experience. But we're also very fortunate to have a, a number of high level vice presidents who we had a meeting at the start with and, and they helped us uh, form the principles upon which we, we based our considerations. So that that was the initial structure of our, of our Brexit think tank. We've met three times now. Uh, we haven't met for a few months because there's been such a stalemate I guess, in, in the, the Brexit process. And I think we'll probably meet again in, in early August. Mm. In particular, I think we need to review and renew the conclusions we came to and actually make sure we consider the, the consequences of, of no deal, which has been raised as a possibility once more. So is the possibility of no deal one of your main concerns? Well, I think in order to understand where we are now with Brexit, we need to look slightly backwards to, to 2016, probably even before that. I think at the time of the vote, Brexit was campaigned on and seemed like a very simple binary decision. We're either in or we're out of the EU. And it's quite clear now that that's a multifaceted and quite a complex task. No country has ever done something like this. We're leaving the world's biggest free free trade area. And I think regulation, or, or more specifically EU regulation, has had a bit of a bumpy ride in the minds of, of UK consumers, businesses and politicians. And that might have been one of the reasons why people voted uh, voted to leave. I think it might have been. I mean, I wouldn't want to put myself in the minds of, of, of leave voters. But what we've tried to do through our considerations is extricate ourselves from the political process. But that's proving almost impossible. Um, CTSI has no particular political colour. However, Brexit and regulation and consumer protection are so wedded to the to the process that it's, it's going to be impossible. So leaving the EU was never going to be uh, an easy thing to dismantle all this interconnectedness overnight. And I think that's why promises such as like this is going to be the easiest deal in history are perhaps proving more more challenging. I feel particularly bad for our, for our civil service because they are the ones that are going to have to deliver this uh, to make sure that we have a, we have a functioning statute book, and that's the huge legal task um, that they face. I also think, in, in retrospect, there probably wasn't a great campaign on either side. So the benefits of EU membership for consumers in terms of the protections were never adequately sold to those who wanted to remain. And I think, I, I think, arguably, the downsides to the EU and the benefits of leaving were potentially exaggerated by those campaigning. To, to leave. I'm thinking of the promise on the side of the bus and all, uh, and all this. And I also say, I, I mean, political and social commentary, as I've said, it's not CTSI's role, and I'm probably straying from my brief slightly. But I think that immigration and, and bad regulation from the EU um, had become so probably incrementally weaponized over the last 10 years that it was an easy trigger for, for, the, for the vote to leave. And I think immigration is, in particular is a lot more nuanced than suggesting that the the EU is a one-way street into the UK for, for benefit scrounders and such. And I do realise that was not the main reason for the Leave vote being successful, but it was it was part of the narrative. I think in, in trading standards, at least, uh, EU citizens have provided essential services in, uh, in areas such as veterinary services for, for our animal health and welfare system and other key roles in our, in our rural economy uh, and service industry. So we're faced with this incredibly complex legal uh, and geopolitical task and it's very difficult to explain and that's why I think there's such uh, continuing uncertainty uh, around. So uh, the will of the people on EUX has proven challenging um, to deliver. Now, rather than explain the details, it's become quite a polarised debate. We're reduced to sound bites, things like uh, platitudes such as taking back control of our money and our borders, 
getting rid of unelected bureaucrats in Brussels um, or it's absolute worst as Brexit means Brexit. I mean, that's a statement so vacuous it really only has one function and that's to close down any further debate on the issue. Uh, and we need to be able to debate the details in order to form policies that, that will protect consumers and, and assist uh, responsible businesses. But you asked about no deal, and I think that is the remaining uncertainty. Do we crash out with no deal? Again, that's a, a, another platitude. I, I know the government and the civil service have been trying really hard to prepare for no deal, and they've created a, a large number of contingencies through through preparing statutory instruments, and it's, it's no easy task. I know they have sitting ready a statutory instrument, one of the largest ever introduced, amending legal metrology and, and product safety. So our preferred option is to leave with a deal, because if we leave with a deal, what we have is a period within which any changes can be can be bedded in, it can be explained to businesses uh, and allow for appropriate resources and expertise uh, and regulation to be put in place. Now, on no deal, I understand the, I understand the negotiating psychology of le- leaving no deal on the table. The principle that the other side needs to know we're prepared to walk away if we don't get what we want. And the analogy I've heard before is like that's like a sales process, um, maybe buying a new car. The car dealer, in this case the EU, will drive a really hard bargain but wants to get a sale just as much as the consumer, in this case, the UK. But the car dealer will only be offering his best terms if he thinks the other side can take it or leave it and he wants to secure a deal. And if they don't, we walk away, back to square one. I get that. It's perfectly acceptable negotiating practice. Um, I think the problem with it in this case, though, is um, we are already committed to a negotiating process because in some senses we've already voted to leave the EU, so we've already traded in our old car. Um, so we can't go back to the status quo because we'll end up causing ourselves possibly economic harm. So I think that's the problem. Um, and I believe for traders and consumers, a period of, of transition or, or implementation would be would be far more preferable. Obviously, it's impossible to look into a crystal ball to see what the future may hold. But are there any specific implications for trading standards in Scotland? which, after all, voted largely to remain in the EU and could hypothetically at some point hold a second independence referendum in the wake of Brexit. The system of, of regulation and consumer protection that we we accrued as membership of the EU affects Scotland, England, Wales, Northern Ireland in exactly the same way. So if we're, uh, I guess, all in it together, then, then so be it. So that is one area where we, we can look there's no political process going on in Scotland at the moment um, that would affect trading standards in terms of, um, you know, a dilution of consumer protection or or regulation. Um, whether at some case, at some stage down the line, by taking back control, it causes you know some tensions in our United Kingdom. That I guess that remains to be seen. Well, trading standards already faces big challenges in terms of cuts to resources. Presumably the uncertainty caused by Brexit is only likely to exacerbate those difficulties. Yeah, uh, I mean, undoubtedly will. Uh, in fact, that was one of the main findings from, from our, our Brexit think tank considerations. Um, much has been made in, in the debates around EU uh, exit uh, of the UK's high standards of regulation in areas such as uh, food standards or product safety, maybe as well animal health and welfare and environmental issues. Now, while the UK is part of a, a single market in the EU, they've necessarily raised those standards and, and non-tariff barriers have been removed to make them so. Um, so, I mean, that is the point of frictionless trade. 
So there should be no differences or standards of protections and no tariffs between member states. We, we have one big market. Um, so when the government says uh, to us that there'll be no lowering of regulatory standards in the case of any post-Brexit deal with new trading partners, then you're inevitably reassured uh, and trading standards have been supportive or CTS have been supportive of that. However, when you look at the detail, high standards of regulation are, are only really viable when they're maintained. And that means businesses need consistent, high-quality advice on how they operate. And we also need proportionate enforcement when regulations are flouted. So that means for smaller businesses that maybe can't avail themselves of high-cost um, legal advice or maybe not have primary authority advice, that many of them rely on frontline officers, frontline trading standards officers, to explain it to them and to guide them through it. So in summary, you can't take 50% and more of frontline trading standards resource from the system and then still claim that you'll maintain high standards of regulation through Brexit. Um, now, I've said this before in, in the journal, the point of the austerity programme was not to cut trading standards services by over half, but that's just what happened. So it's a consequence of where trading standards are. We, we languish primarily at the, at the mercy of local decision makers who are, who are really faced with some tough and uncomfortable spending decisions. And we've, we've borne the brunt like other smaller services. So the truth is whether we maintain high standards throughout Brexit and beyond, in some cases and some local authorities, will just be down to a matter of luck, whether we have the officers. And the more we diverge, the more time we need to prepare or the risks will get worse. So again, it's back to having um, leaving in an orderly fashion, I think, is, is the platitude. The, the cuts to trading standards services over the last uh, few years or even decade has nothing to do with Brexit. It's just, it's just that Brexit shines a light on it in particular because just at the time when you need to rely on high standards of regula regulation and, and officers and you may face new... Uh, sets of regulations to explain, then is at a time when your, your resources are at its, at its absolute lowest. So Brexit threatens to expose some of the vulnerabilities that are already there. Yeah. I mean, at a recent symposium, we looked at um, the the idea of major regulatory crises and what, what the state of preparedness was in the system for them. And we looked at things as far back as animal health and welfare, which, which I remember when I first started in trading standards being a sort of Everyone drop everything, all hands to the pump. We need to deal with this particular crisis. And there just isn't the numbers to do that now. Uh, and it's right through to things like the current situation with Whirlpool. Um, recently, we were, you know, horse meat was being sold as beef. Um, and even the, uh, right through to the tragedy of Grenfell. I think the narrative on regulation is changing unnecessarily. Uh, uh, so um, I think without it, you, you see what you know, major shocks can happen to our consumer confidence, um, to business confidence uh, and, and to our economy. A lot of the consumer protection laws we have at the moment are heavily intertwined with those of other countries in the EU. Presumably in some cases, it just isn't feasible for them to be replaced with unilateral equivalents. I think there's a risk in this particular case that you can overstate the dangers. Um, then this was one of, again, this was one of the, our key findings from, from the Brexit think tank. It's important to see, I mean, the government's ambition is for, for no less, no fewer protections for consumers and no lowering standards of regulation, which we support. But if we look at the EU's influence in our consumer laws and enforcement, it's really substantial. Um, and now I, I, the EU's reputation on, the cons on consumer rights has perhaps fared better than its reputation. 
and I mean only its reputation on the issues around regulation. Um, but if you look at the key consumer rights that, that we have uh, that have emanated from the EU, um, I mean we've got we've got protections in areas such as sale of goods and guarantees. We've now got transparency around who owns websites. There are stricter rules on credits and credit forms. We've strict liability for defective products that cause injury. Um, and never mind all that. I mean, with a, a lot of really good stuff done on unfair consumer contracts. So um, the challenge is, uh, like EU law and EU consumer policy isn't perfect. Um, and maximum harmonisation principles have meant that the UK has, has arguably had to dilute certain protections that we enjoyed without the EU. However, it, it has made a, a huge difference. But one of the things that, um, that that is clear is that a great deal of the way that EU law has been implemented means that it is already secured within our within our legal system and and only needs tweaked to um, to be kept. Um, so I, it's important not to overstate the risks. The consumer protections that we enjoyed as be, from being members of the EU won't vanish overnight on the 1st of November when we, if we actually leave on the 1st of November. But you mentioned, I guess, in your question, that, you know, can we can we recreate everything in a unilateral manner? And that's at the heart of it. Um, because everything has already been implemented and merely needs tweaked to function, I'm talking about references to the European Court of Justice and EU, um, but the key issue is that there are regulations, and you rightly pointed this out, that simply cannot be unilaterally reapplied by the UK themselves. It comes back to this word that continually came up in our discussions of reciprocity. We'd require reciprocal actions from the remaining 27 uh, and cooperation by other member states. So that's where the government's ambition for, for no post-EU lowering of consumer protection comes under some, some real challenge. Take, take a key one, for example. Um, we have a a regulation called the Consumer Protection Cooperation Regulation. Uh, now, this, uh, as, as it would suggest, is about cooperating on consumer protection across the EU. And the CMA are at the forefront of this for, for the UK. Uh, now, that's an example of uh, a regulation that's been used to tackle road trading practices that maybe come up in one member state, yet badly affect consumers in, in other member states. So it's been used really successfully in areas such as uh, travel booking sites, um, car hire, children's in-app purchases. If you've ever, like I have, hired a car in the EU when you've been on holiday, then you'll know what I mean. You get there and there's willful upselling of, of unnecessary insurance to, to you know, trip tired and stressed holidaymakers who, who just want to go on with their holiday. So it's these sort of protections, this cooperative networks where the UK cannot go alone. And that's where we've relied on this sort of synergies created by, by reciprocal actions across um, you know, these, these sort of networks. So for consumer laws, the reassuring bit is post-Brexit, domestically, they will be largely unaffected. If you buy goods online or in the shops from a UK retailer, uh, you'll notice very little difference in your rights, unless the economy changes, of course, changes radically and there are price rises, et cetera, et cetera. But that's one for economists. That's not one for, for trading standards policy. So it's only when you start looking at, at things like cross-border purchases, um, which is an increasing market uh, as digital platforms expand, 
and when you look at areas such as travel and, and cross-border cooperation, that's where you see that the, the real risks um, lie. So it, it's important not to overstate the risks to our, our, our consumer protection. I think there are far more challenges in areas around uh, explaining what new regulatory procedures might mean for business. Do you mean communicating specifically with businesses about the risks they need to be aware of? Yeah, absolutely right. The trouble is, right now you can't tell them. So we have this uh, curious position where we have government websites that are giving two forms of advice. And now that's quite right too, but uh, if you're a trader and you go on to the government website to see how will this affect me, it will give you two scenarios. What will happen if we have a deal? And invariably that means don't worry, everything will stay the same because we'll have a transition period. And what will happen if we have no deal? And then we become a third country overnight and uh, there the are real challenges explaining things, just as you pointed out, uh, such as product conformity assessment and markings that should be on it. And, I hope, you know, what laws apply? Um, what, what do they need to do to be able to, um, to trade with the EU? This is true for consumers and businesses. Do you think there's a possibility that in terms of consumer protection issues, Brexit could put UK companies at a disadvantage compared with their European counterparts? I'm thinking here about us not being a member of the digital single market, for example. Uh, well, I, the trouble is the question whether we're not being members of the digital single market it will be dis- disadvantageous to British uh, business and consumers. can't really be answered yet because we haven't left. However, you can hypothesise, and you can do that by looking at what the ambitions for the digital single market are, and you, you start to get some answers. So the EU has a market of, of nearly 500 million consumers who are, are increasingly interacting and buying things online. And one of the central plans for the digital single market is to remove barriers, much like the, the, the single market for goods, to remove barriers across member states. For example, by making illegal things such as unnecessary geo-blocking. Now, geo-blocking is one of these fancy words where it simply means that some member states will only allow certain digital content from within their borders and will block external digital services. Um, so there's a freedom in this or cooperation to the ambitions of the digital single market that, that we would definitely want to, to tap into. In many ways, the UK has has actually been at the forefront of e-commerce, um, and we are we're one of the one of the nations that has more confident consumers who buy online and buy at cross border. And we want to maintain that. I think that would be the main ambition, because um, we've traditionally been at the top of cross border e-commerce sales. Uh, we also beat the EU to the punch by enshrining rights for consumers of, of digital content in the Consumer Rights Act. So when you buy digital content, such as streaming a movie or, or playing a game online, you know, since the Consumer Rights Act, we have clarity about your protections when you buy that particular content. And we, we were we were first to do that. And the digital single market is in effect sort of catching up in, in that respect. So the, the risks are hard to know until we either align or diverge. Uh, and I think it would be important to, to really keep an eye on the direction of the market as well as the risks when we leave straight away. In terms of whether UK businesses will remain comp- competitive within it, it's not a trading standards matter. I think that's one really for the for the CMA, uh, and they're doing a lot of good work in, in, in that respect. The challenge we have is that as soon as you um, disconnect from networks and cooperations and communications, particularly in a digital world, which is all about interconnectedness, it, it makes your 
role within that system that bit more challenging. That would be true of consumer protection and that would be true of competition. Did you have any people from the business world involved to offer their views when you were setting up the Brexit think tank? We did have business representation on the Brexit think tank, although I have to say it proved a bit challenging to get them to get them on board. What, what has become clear is, and, and statements from the CBI on this are, are aligned with our own, it's about the uncertainty. Now, we, I can bang the drum and say uncertainty for regulators is bad um, because we cannot advise business. But for businesses, that it's it's you know it's ten times worse because they they have to make big investment decisions in in their future products and services, and ongoing uncertainty about the rules with which they will be able to do so they, that that hampers that you know it discredits that investment and so it's it, it's far more challenging for for business than it is for, than it is for regulators. Um, but we would definitely say that our our interests are aligned when it comes to things like. Uh, some certainty over the type of standards uh, and rules within which we, we will trade with the EU and other partners in the future. Well, you've already mentioned risks for consumer detriment around car hire on the continent. What about issues like flight cancellations? Presumably travel for UK citizens in Europe is a particular area of focus for the think tank. Travel was one of the key planks of, of our Brexit think tank. And I, I think I said earlier that the vast majority of domestic consumer rights will be retained. Uh, and that's fine. But it's, it, I mean, it was becoming increasingly arguable that the first time consumers might feel that Brexit has has an impact on it and a detrimental impact um, would be the first time they travel abroad in, in the EU after we leave. Uh, but again, it depends. It depends on the detail. Uh, in order to see what you might lose, you have to look at what, what you, you gained by EU membership. So, I mean, it's things like you you can now go to the EU and you don't need to have an international driving permit. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when you had to have one of those. I pointed out that you get compensation for, for flight cancellations and delays. I mean, that, and that's really important when you consider now that the budget airlines, which are, are have been tremendous boost to the economy, but how tightly they and wafer thin their change over times are. So cancellation and delays become important. We have protections there if if a travel company goes bust, you can usually get your money back due to insolvency compensation. Trading standards officers are making sure that descriptions on on brochures and websites um, are accurate. You can usually get help if you're conned into something like a timeshare or a holiday ownership um, scam. You can get help, advice, uh, and usually cancel that. Oh, and, and now when you're abroad... You can call, text and FaceTime as if you were back at home without any mobile um, roaming charges. So, I mean, there's increasing, there's, this was the big threat, but there's increasing clarity over these issues because there was a lot of preparedness done before the first deadline of 20, 29th of March. Um, that it would now seem that regardless of the deal, a lot of these protections will, will, be, will be retained, flight compensation and, and whatnot. But ideally, we want a change to make sure we have, again, a transition period and a sort of orderly changeover. I mean, I would take mobile roaming charges as the perfect example of where consumers become used to something very good very quickly. I mean, from from my own point of view, if I if a retailer now won't allow me to pay contactless for the purchases, I, I sort of shake my head. Now, you know, these are, these are sort of... Um, uh, advancements that have only been in place for a few years and now they're the accepted norm of, of consumer purchases. So if you tell consumers they're losing protection such as mobile roaming, roaming charges, you end up with a bit of disgruntlement. And I, I would use mobile roaming as an example 
because it's an area, again, it's one of these areas that the UK cannot unilaterally control. It is based on an EU regulation, but the mobile service providers who, who, who allow this, they absorb the costs across their networks. So when it comes to us leaving in the case of no deal, some have agreed that they will continue mobile roaming, but but some have have not. So it isn't unanimous. So when it comes to post-EU travel, there's, there is a great deal more clarity. And the moment, at the moment, it doesn't seem uh, disastrous, but nothing yet is, is settled. I know the UK European Consumer Centre has concerns about what role it will have post-Brexit. Obviously, the ideal is that it will be able to provide UK consumers with the same level of support around things like cross-border disputes as at present. But how likely is it that that's going to be possible? Yeah, it's a real threat and it's a real shame as well. So, and I think we certainly CTSI needs to focus quite a bit of our efforts and, and, and policy in this area. I mean, there's a, there's a common saying in trading standards that if you know your consumer rights are, are little or no value if you can't uphold or enforce them. Uh, I mean, right now in the UK, if you have a dispute with a, a, a trader that's, that's a domestic trader, you have so much you can avail yourself of to, to seek redress and, and compensation. You can get advice online. We have ADR routes, uh, you know, trade associations, codes of practice. You can make a complaint to your local trading standards service. And, and if all else fails, you take the trader to court in this country and you use the small claims procedure. Uh, but that, that's a huge, there's a huge umbrella of protection that, you only usually extends to the UK jurisdiction. Um, now, the moment you have a contract with an EU-based trader uh, or maybe an, an agreement you entered into while you were abroad, that proves more, more challenging. Um, and that's why sources of advice and networks such as uh, the EU contacts that we have at the European Consumer Centre are vital. So, I mean, at the moment, take, for example, a trader in Italy is maybe minded to rip off a, a UK consumer uh, on an online platform. If that consumer goes to complain to their local trading standards about it, that the trader in Italy is not going to fear contact from a, a UK, a small UK service such as Essex Trading Standards or whatever. But if they re- receive a phone call or a visit from the enforcement body in Italy asking them, you know, what are you playing at? Why aren't you complying with the Unfair Commercial Practice Directive or Sale of Goods legislation? Um, then that complaint is likely to get uh, to get a lot more um traction. If they can't resolve it, um, then the, the consumer can still use European small claims procedures and you know reciprocal recognition of, of, of civil judgments can, can bring some, some chance of redress. And in the UK, the European Consumer Centre is the hub of that advice. Uh, it is the route to actions and redress, just as you know, digital platforms, cross-border purchases are getting more, uh, are getting wider and bigger and more common. That that lifeline is under threat. Uh, and, and, and I think it'll be a huge loss to the protection of EQ, UK consumers who make make cross-border purchases. So, yeah, I mean, the, the irony is that it, will come, it comes at a time as our, just as our consumer protection systems might diverge where, um, you know, advice and, and clarity on what the rules are will be at an absolute premium, much, much like a regulatory system. If the UK has to start renegotiating its bilateral relationships with individual countries, is there much of a concern that certain European countries are likely to have lower standards of protection than others? I mean, one of the big things that has always come up has been, you know, food standards. Um, and that, that seems to be a, a key area that, that where consumers in particular are thinking 
that may cause um, cause some concern. I mean, I'm, I I did my trading standards training in Scotland, um, so it's usually the preserve of environmental health officers in that particular area. So I rely on on experts, um, our lead officer experts, such as Dave Pickering from Bucks and Surrey or Caroline Lowe at, at Flincher. Um, but I, I guess one of the key points that we would have made from the Brexit think tank on this issue is that um, there should be no lowering of standards for food. So that's our, our policy that we, we support the government's aim in this. No lowering of standards for food policy, no lowering of standards in animal health and welfare and agriculture. And and that should go right through our, our food chain system uh, as a result of our EU exit. We've reached quite a high standard in that respect and and. I don't believe that that should be that should be lowered. Well, talking of food standards, one thing that seems to have really caught the public's attention is the idea of chlorinated chicken coming into the food chain as a result of new trade relationships with the US, for example. How much of this do you think is just down to media scaremongering? I mean, when I first heard that, I thought they were talking about coronation chicken. I thought it sounded actually, it sounded quite nice. No, I mean, the example of chlorinated chicken, it's almost become uh, the, the symbol, isn't it? That's the symbol of lowered standards that are argued as necessary. Um, should we try and strike a deal? Um, I think in particular with the, with the United States. Um, I mean, it's easy to see why, isn't it? You mentioned foods that, that remind you of the smell of chlorine and the taste of chicken. It doesn't exactly evoke images of, of high culinary never mind food standards um but my understanding on this and again the food area i i will always defer to others as i will in many other areas but my understanding is that ever since particularly the bse outbreak the eu's and by definition then the uk's food policy has been to prevent rather than remediate in when it comes to food crisis what that means is that farmers in the eu and the UK have had to take care to avoid food risks at every single stage of the process, um, rather than to hell with the you know welfare of animals. Let's have industrial style farming, and then we'll wash out any pathogens at the end through some sort of chemical bath. So our very recent history with foot and mouth um, BSE horse meat being sold as beef it also suggests that we aren't exactly squeaky clean when it comes to to food standards and 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 animal welfare. So um, maybe chlorinated chicken just could turn out to be a red herring. Oh dear, that's terrible. But whether that, all that means our food is less safe, uh, you, know, you know, the chemical washing of, of chickens or whether it's of a lower quality standard is, is argued by the UK side and the US side. But what it does seem to do is make the chemically washed product cheaper. So that's because they haven't had to have the same care in the uh, in the process and, and the way that the EU and UK uh, farmers have had to and that's the same too for for issues such as hormone treated cattle um, and other types of of, of industrialised farming so the argument comes down to cost versus standards uh, and we are clear that there should be no lowering of standards to secure uh, new trade deals uh, and at the moment the government agrees um, so it's about keeping your eye on that particular area and uh, and being ready to examine what might be coming down the track if, they, if they're suggesting a new trade deal with a, a non-EU country. Obviously, we've talked a lot about the risks for consumer detriment around Brexit. Has the think tank also foreseen any potential benefits, perhaps in terms of simplifying certain areas in which legislation can be a bit muddled at the moment? The task that we set the Brexit think tank was, um, well, I guess it was twofold. One, what are the risks from our EU exit and what are the opportunities? And in the three meetings that we had with all the experts across uh, all the areas that we considered, 
the opportunities were hard to come by. <clears throat> um, it, it was hard to come up with some. Um, I think that's you know that's that's maybe because that is not what these uh, these experts are are involved in, and that that you again you stray into the political aspects of it by saying if if I make a statement, for example, that that says Brexit brings nothing but risks to our system of trading standards, then that's perhaps not having the worldview that that is really required to take a to take an informed point on it. However, I think it's because the major changes that Brexit brings brings risk. Um, when you are unpicking the, the certainty that we have of the laws and networks and the relationships that have been built over many decades, it's hard to see beyond the risks. So our Brexit think tank considerations were really very detailed. Um, but when it came to opportunities, it was less put forward because of the um, uncertainty around everything. Um, but I, I think in your question, you said that there might be the potential, and I would emphasise that there is a potential around some simplification because if you look at how UK and EU law has has interacted at the moment EU law is debated and created by European institutions that of course have had the interest of 28 different member states in mind as they do this so it's never been one size fits all regulation that the UK has went well that suits us and it's perfectly acceptable for UK markets and businesses it wasn't actually I don't think it was ever designed to do that but post-Brexit, because of the way that we've implemented some of these laws, there's, a, there's perhaps an opportunity to clarify our systems of regulation and consumer protection so that we can legislate for the interests of uh, of, of the UK markets and businesses alone. If you look at, at there's, the perfect example is legal metrology uh, or weights and measures. We obviously need to clarify metrology these days in a way that we never thought we'd have to. People still <laughs> mispronounce it as meteorology, which is very frustrating. Uh, however, metrology is recognised as the cornerstone of, of, of trading standards uh, work, and we were excellently served in our Brexit think tank by the sadly recently passed uh, but very great guy called David Templeton. Uh, he was an, an absolute international expert in legal metrology, and some actually he was someone who, who, who always stole the show at our Brexit think tank meetings by calmly explaining how legal metrology was the underpinning scientific basis for all the other disciplines, and uh, he always stole the show. Um, however, he saw when it comes to opportunities around Brexit that our systems of weighing, measurement, and control that, that we'd introduced as a result of EU membership had, had just been sort of laid over, that overlapped with the UK systems, creating different regimes. Um, so we have instruments out there that are in, in, you know, in use for trade that require to be stamped or tested according to UK systems or EU systems. And he saw that there was an opportunity, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity was how he described it, um, to de-layer and simplify um, our legal systems of metrology through verification and testing. So that's a very technical example of it. Um, but there are other issues around um, things like consumer contract regulations that are being um, probably that are really difficult to interpret and apply. Um, and we've got lead officer experts working with Bayes on, on that area as well. So opportunities uh, in the short term really around potentially simplifying things whether the government departments have the bandwidth to consider these things at the moment, though, is, is, is another question. So just to wrap things up, what would be your key message to those working on the front line of trading standards about what CTSI is doing to make sense of and mitigate some of the challenges and complications that are likely to arise out of Brexit? 
when we looked at everything, there were there were three sort of key areas that that, that we drew cross cutting sort of themes from, and and they were just as I I, I outlined earlier things around um, you know what is what is fine, what is safe, what is what has actually been retained through this process. The government's ambitions of of no lowering of consumer protection, no lowering standards of regulation are are all very uh, very well served and we you know we broadly support them but i guess my message would be there will be a number of technical nuanced little areas that 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 the uh, government departments in whitehall haven't considered the implications of uh, that we would like to hear from them about so the no doubt there'll be officers out there who will go what's happening with uh, you know product conformity assessment or what's happening in this area of product safety what's happened to rapex um and ideally what we what the brexit think tank process was supposed to do was to have them bring those inquiries to us so that we can put them to government i'm i'm relatively new to consumer policy but what what i'm finding is that rather than being a closed shop, Whitehall departments are absolutely receptive to on-the-ground expertise at this particular time. Now, whether it was ever thus or, or not is arguable, but certainly I'm finding that right now they want to hear from people on the ground about what the challenges are uh, and you know what might work and what might not work. So my message would be, um, I, I guess... Uh, Help us. Um, don't panic about, uh, about consumer rights, and help us shape the messages that we need to give to to colleagues and to um, and to businesses. I think we we've um, in this particular area. I think we we are really well served by the experts we have around the table. Um, there's been a, a sort of uh, hiatus where we, I guess, while the political process has stalled. But we're now back into that area where we are potentially heading for no deal, you know, the the uh, disorderly exit, if you want to call it that. And and there will be a lot of challenges around that, not just in terms of resources, but in terms of laws that won't work overnight. We haven't had a chance to properly scrutinise, and we're good at that. We're good at looking at regulations and saying, well, that won't work or this won't work. We haven't had a chance to to scrutinise the preparedness of no deal legislation at this stage, um, and that might come to, to fruition quite quickly. Um, but again, I'm I'm hoping no deal is um, uh, is is a negotiating tactic that will never have to be uh, dusted off the shelf, and I'm hoping that we get an implementation period where this we get this orderly Brexit that everyone's looking for and uh, who knows potentially new trade deals might be might be a good thing for the UK well that's it for another episode thanks to Craig McClue for talking to us and thank you for listening we'll be back again in a fortnight's time with more from the world of trading standards if you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast or you just want to get in touch send us an email to made to measure at jtsmag.uk Don't forget to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. Until next time, goodbye.